Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 567 with Kristen Neff. Kristen's got some pro tips on how you can achieve more with less criticism through what she calls self-compassion. So if you've been beating yourself up, if you're less productive now amidst the coronavirus or just all the time, she's got some great insights that I believe you will be enriched by and you might have a much more pleasant experience inside your own head. You'll learn one, why self-compassion is in fact a better motivator than criticism. Two, how to turn the compassion you have for others inward. And three, the value of your tone and touch within self-compassion. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you can expand that in your app player or visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash app, that's EP 567. Here's Kristen's story. Kristen Neff is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct over 15 years ago. She's the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Power of Being Kind to Yourself. In conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. Kristen received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley, studying moral development, and she's currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. So big thanks to Kristen for sharing her insights with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Kristen. Kristen, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, thanks, Pete. Glad to be here. Well, I, we've got a lot of fun stuff to dig into. But one unique thing we learned about you in research is that you were featured in a documentary called Horse Boy. What is this story all about? <laughs> yeah, so it was a crazy adventure my family took with my son. So my son is autistic. And uh, when he was very young, uh, my ex-husband, his father, um, he had done a lot of work with uh, human rights work with various indigenous peoples. And so we met some um, people like the Bushmen from the Kalahari. And we noticed that my, that my son kind of seemed to get better when he was around shamans. And they kind of worked on them. And he really seemed to have an improvement in symptoms. And uh, my son also learned to talk on horseback from the back of a horse. Okay, well, where in the world um, combines horses with shamanism? And of course, the answer was Mongolia, <laughs> because mm. that's where the horse comes from, and shamanism is a natural religion. So he got this crazy idea, why don't we go to Mongolia and ride 
um, through the outer Mongolia visiting shamans on horseback and see what it does for our son. And so he talked me into it and it was, it was an amazing adventure. He actually did have a lot of improvements. Now, whether, I don't know why, it may be just the family adventure in a really new context that led to the improvements, but the whole idea was, um, can autism be an adventure as opposed to a death sentence? Mm. So, and, and it really was an adventure. And I have to say, you know, my son now, it's, he's 18. It's just me and him now with this, you know, closed down in the pandemic. He is the most amazing kid. He never complains. He is so sweet. He's so positive. He says things like, well, he knows it may get better tomorrow. And, you know, mm-hmm. he cleans up after me in the, in the kitchen. He's just, he's just such a wonderful soul. And part of me wonders, is that because when he was growing up, we never made his autism a pathology. We always just considered it a gift. And, uh, yeah, he's doing amazing. So that's my other, my other life. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. And thanks for sharing that. And a good perspective, I think here, when your other life is as an expert on self-compassion, you sort of own that phrase or hyphenated <laughs> word combo. <laughs> so what does that mean exactly? And how is that um, helpful? So uh, self-compassion is really just using this experience we have all the time of compassion for others, especially people we care about, uh, and doing a little U-turn so we give ourselves compassion. So it's just treating yourself with kindness, support, care, concern, just like you would naturally do for others. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds like a good thing to do. Tell us, what is that in contrast to? If we're people are not self-compassionate, what are we? Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of people are confused about self-compassion. They think, you know, it's self-pity or that it's the same as self-esteem or that it's self-indulgent. Um, it's really none of those things. And there's actually research to show that it's just simply a way of relating to yourself with kindness, care and support. Now, most people actually, we show in my research tend to be pretty self-critical. Right. Most people, if you ask them, who are you, who are you more compassionate to others or yourself? Vast majority are more compassionate to others than themselves. Um, so really self compassion is a way of correcting that imbalance. And, you know, instead of shaming ourselves because we aren't perfect or just feeling so isolated because, you know, our life isn't going the way we want it to, as if life's supposed to go exactly the way we want it to. We just kind of em- embrace our imperfection. We realize this is part of the shared human experience uh, and we support ourselves through. Mm-hmm. Okay. So can you give us some maybe real world examples in terms of when we're speaking to ourselves in a self-critical way versus a self-compassionate way? And we'll start with that. And we've got much more to dig into from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, motivation is a really good context to see the difference between self-criticism and self-compassion, because most people like very naturally think that self-criticism is an effective motivator, you know, and the thing is, it, it kind of is, it's kind of like a steam engine that's, that burns coal, like it'll get you up the hill, but it spits out a lot of smoke, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, self-criticism, although it can motivate us, it has unintended effects like, um, we, we develop performance anxiety because if I don't do as well as I'd like to, I'm going to beat myself up. Uh, we often develop fear of failure, which can lead to things like procrastination, right? Oftentimes when we fail, we just give up because we can't handle risking our, our, our sense of self again by trying. Um, so self-compassion, on the other hand, it's, it's also very strongly linked to motivation and, and more effective motivation than self-criticism. 
<clears throat> so we try not because we're unacceptable as we are, but simply because we care about ourselves. We want to achieve our best. And so with that sense of unconditional safety, in other words, the bottom line is if you fail, you know, you're still going to be okay. I will still love myself, but I will try again because I care and I want to do better. And so people are, are less likely to procrastinate. They're less likely to develop anxiety. They actually perform better for that reason. Um, they don't give up as easily. They have more grit. So again, there's a ton of research on this showing that it's a better motivator than self-criticism. Oh, now, now those are some nice benefits. So more motivation, less procrastination, uh, more grit. I think you said less anxiety. Yes, absolutely. Less anxiety, less depression. Well, could you share, well, I love me some research and some data and some numbers. <laughs> what is perhaps one of the most striking in terms of, ooh, those are really impressive results and numbers there, kind of study or research do you think folks who want to be awesome at their jobs would be impressed to hear about? Well, so here's something pretty remarkable. You know, some people think that self-compassion is weak. Self-compassion, when, when the going gets tough, is a remarkable source of resilience. So I'll just give you an example of a study <clears throat> looking at combat veterans who had come back from Iraq or Afghanistan. And so they measured their self-compassion level, these veterans, and they followed the veterans up for nine months. And they found that self-compassion, you know, those, those soldiers with higher self-compassion were much less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. But even here, here's the kicker. Self-compassion level was even a stronger predictor than how much action they had seen. Hmm. So in other words, in terms of how traumatized you are, more important than like how much action you saw, how much, you know, gore or violence you experienced, more important than that in terms of how traumatized you are is how did you relate to yourself in the midst of that trauma? Yeah. You know, were you an ally? Did you have your own back? Did you support yourself? Were you kind? Or did you tear yourself down? I mean, for instance, the issue of shame, a lot of veterans, combat soldiers have a lot of feelings of, you know, um, shame, like maybe what they're doing is wrong and they tear themselves down and they criticize themselves. And there's also a huge problem with attempted suicide among the veterans, um, but not those who have self-compassion. If you teach vets to have self-compassion, they're much less likely to try to commit suicide. So those are the type of really strong findings we get, really showing how strong it makes you, it makes you very strong. Oh, that's excellent. So then with the motivation, can you share one of those studies? Yeah, I can. Okay, so there's a great study um, by a woman named, um, two women named Serena Chen and Juliana Breens at UC Berkeley, my alma mater in, in California. And so what they did is um, they had a group of undergraduates uh, in their study, and they gave them a, a very hard vocabulary test that everyone failed. Okay, and so they split these um, these subjects, these undergraduates into three groups. One group, they told, they helped to be self-compassionate. You know, don't beat yourself up about it. Everyone fails. It's okay. It's only human, right? So just kind of be kind to yourself. Um, another group, they didn't say anything. They were just a neutral control. But a third group, they said, hey, don't worry about it. You must be smart. You got into Berkeley, for goodness sakes, mm. right? <laughs> so the self-esteem boost condition. And then the next step of the study was they gave students a second test. And they said, okay, well, you know, here's the second test. You can study as long as you want for the second vocabulary test. And what they found was that the students who were told to be self-compassionate, um, they, they studied more, they studied longer, and they actually performed better on the test. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so this kind of shows you, we talk so much about self-esteem, about, you know, self-confidence. It's actually much more important just to be kind and supportive to yourself. So let's zoom right into that example in terms of, okay, here I am. I took a test and it didn't go awesomely. <laughs> and I've got an opportunity to take another. Uh-huh. And I am following self-compassion approaches. What would I say and or do to myself? Well, so first of all, on what self-compassion does is it is it makes it okay to fail. And more than that, it helps us recognize that we learn from failure, right? So self-compassion allows us to have what they call learning goals as opposed to performance goals. You know, I want to do well so I can learn and grow as opposed to because I need other people to like me. Mm-hmm. Because when you have self-compassion, you don't need other people to like you. Your, your sense of self-worth is a contingent on other people approving of you, or you getting the grade you want, or the job performance evaluations you want, right? And, and so people might think, well, if I don't care about my job performance evaluations, then how am I going to, you know, why should I even keep trying? The thing is, you do still care about getting positive evaluations, but your self-worth isn't contingent on it. So if you get a poor evaluation or you fail a test, the idea is you can say to yourself, oh, well, first of all, hey, that hurt, you know, kind of validating the fact that it hurts. Um, That hurt. Um, But, you know, it's okay. Everyone fails. Everyone's imperfect. What can I learn from this situation? You know, how, how can I grow from this? And then that orientation towards learning and growth, because you want to do better, not because you have to be better to be a good enough person, but just because you want to do better because you care. That's actually the engine that drives you to do better. And it's more sustainable and it's more effective. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. Well, so I don't want to make this all about the coronavirus, but, you know, (laughs) it's top of mind (laughs) for a lot of folks. And I think that's kind of part of the context of why we thought your stuff would be just right for us right now. So it was funny just today as I was prepping, I, I read this onion headline, which just cracks me up. The parody newspaper there, it says, um, man, not sure why he thought most psychologically taxing situation of his life would be the thing to make him productive. And and then toward the end, it says, I thought I'd have all this energy and space to focus on my creative side, but I guess living with ever-present crushing uncertainty and the knowledge that people all around me are dying wasn't the stimulus I needed after all. (laughs) Yeah. And so we had another guest, uh, Liz Fossline, who shared a lovely graphic on LinkedIn about productivity, like how productive am I normally? How productive am I during an unprecedented global pandemic? The bar chart is way shorter, like a fifth. And so I think that uh, this is a common experience. I'm, I'm feeling it and others are as well that, huh, here I have in some ways fewer obligations upon me. Mm-hmm. It, this varies wildly person to person, but some people might say, like, you know, when plans get canceled, you're like, oh, hey, I guess I'm freed up. Well, in a way, a lot of things have been canceled. Yeah. Yet, even those of us who are healthy and not tending to someone in a tough spot, you know, physically, medically. Or parents watching their kids. Yeah. Well, certainly, yeah. <laughs> you know, can find ourselves with a, a malaise, a reduction of energy, productivity, etc., and can be hard <laughs> on themselves as a result. Like, come on, man. Where's the juice? Where's all the stuff you were crushing before? It's uncrushed. Yeah. Could you comment on how do we deal with this in a self-compassionate way and what results might flow from that? Yeah, so it, it's really important. I've actually done several um, programs helping people use self-compassion to deal with the anxiety about um, the pandemic. 
So self-compassion actually has three main components. The first is mindfulness. In other words, we have to be willing to check in with ourselves. You know, how am I feeling? I think what's happening for a lot of people is they're just, you know, they're making sure they have enough groceries. They're kind of getting through each day. They're making sure they're wearing their masks. They're really focused on keeping themselves safe. But they haven't paused to say, you know, hey, this is really hard. You know, I'm really fearful or maybe I'm grieving or I feel really stressed or I feel lonely, whatever it is you're feeling. We kind of don't do that U-turn to say, um, well, I'm I'm having a really hard time right now. And you actually need to be mindful first in order to give yourself compassion. And then maybe, maybe toward their friends are being, you know, supportive or maybe to your elderly parents, you're being supportive. But often we forget to be supportive with ourselves. I mean, if ever there was a time where we need emotional support, where we need kindness, you know, it's right now. So again, and that may, that may be in the form of, um, warm language with ourselves, a warm tone of voice, kind of reminding ourselves that, you know, we have our own backs, that we won't abandon ourselves, that, you know, we're here. Um, and that's especially important because most of us feel really isolated, right? Um, the, the, one of the real, um, benefits of self-compassion, again, is it, it's, it connects to other people, connects to humanity. So the difference between self-pity and self-compassion, self-pity is woe is me. Self-compassion is, yeah, life is hard for everyone. Everyone's imperfect. Everyone struggles, right? So it's a much more unbalanced state of mind. And so sometimes, you know, we're feeling lonely because we're all alone in our house, perhaps. But then it's very easy nowadays to remember, hey, it's not just me. It's actually what, two billion other people, maybe three billion at this point, who are also struggling with the same situation. So even though physically we may be alone, emotionally, as long as we remember that it's not just me, we can actually feel more connected. And so just going through these three little steps, be mindful of your pain, being kind to yourself because it's hard, and just remembering that you aren't alone. This is this is bigger than you. Mm-hmm. All right. That is great. And I'd love it when you talk about sort of the internal mental self-talk stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there any really just like go-to, I don't know, mantras, scripts, phrases that you love or you found people you work with love in terms of like breaking the pattern of, you're so stupid, why did you do that? Ah, you know, <laughs> and to quickly kind of regain control and put it on a better path. Yes. Yeah, so everyone uses different language. And really the easiest way to find the language that works for you is to think, what if I had a really loved close friend who was going through the exact same situation I'm going through? And actually in this case, you probably do. <laughs> How would I talk to them? Right? So me, I'm, I tend to be a little more I don't know, mushy, I guess you would call it. So I call myself sweetheart and darling and my tone of voice is almost like a mother. I also have an autistic child. So I'm very used to using that warm motherly tone. But for many people, that tone would make them gag, right? Mm -hmm. Some people may be, hey, buck up, it's going to be okay. But there's a difference between buck up, it's going to be okay, which is like, you should be better. And hey, buck up, it's going to be okay. So the tone of voice of the voice inside your head matters. The tone of voice matters a lot. All right. And not only tone of voice, but touch. So the first two years of life, we don't have language, right? We can't really communicate with our parents. So the, the two main ways we communicate with parents that, that they communicate care to us is touch and tone of voice. And so what we know is that warm tone of voice and um, soothing or supportive touch 
actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which means it calms us down, it makes us feel supported, it makes us feel safe. So you can, you know, put your hands on your heart or on your stomach or on your face, as long as you've washed your hands or a hug or something like that. Some sort of physical gesture that makes you feel safe and supported. And even if it seems a little odd at first, and you know, I'll admit it, it does seem odd at first, your body doesn't really know the difference, right? So it's not that your body doesn't know the difference between self and other, but your body reacts the same way when you give yourself supportive touch as when you give it to others, right? And then again, if you use a warm tone, that's another way that your body just kind of naturally says, oh, okay, I can relax, it's safe. Mm-hmm. So really, just just say, what would I say to a dear friend and try that out? And that's probably your best bet for language. Well, yeah, and it's funny. There are so many different kinds of touch. And, and, right now. I don't know. Sometimes in these interviews, I, I, I often go into humor, like the onion. <laughs> or now I'm thinking about a Key and Peele sketch where there's football players really into uh, <laughs> patting people's butts. <laughs> so, But that might be it for yeah, you if you had an athletic <laughs> career or I've got one of those little head scratcher thingies, you know, oh, right, those wires. Yeah. I think those feel awesome. <laughs> yeah. terms of like, mm. Head scratcher or kind of fist bump on the chest yeah. or something like that. Absolutely. That's good. Okay. Well, so I want to make sure we also hit the notion of, you know, for the gunners, the achievers who are all about, uh, you know, having high standards, high expectations, demanding yeah. excellence. How do these things square and work together? Yeah, so the research shows that self-compassionate people, you know, their standards are just as high as everyone else's. Because high standards comes from wanting to reach your full potential, wanting to be happy, wanting to, you know, do your best. The huge difference is what happens when you don't meet your standards, right? Because we're human beings. Sometimes we make, we reach our standards. Sometimes we don't. And so if you're very self-critical, when you, when you fall short of your standards, you mean like, that's not acceptable. You have to do better or else like the, the threat is kind of like, or else I won't love you or else I'll say mean things to you or else I'll hate you. We say this to ourselves. And again, that actually undermines our ability to do our best because it creates a sense of anxiety, right? Um, you know, so, so in other words, the, the drive to achieve doesn't come from the self-criticism. <laughs> the drive to achieve comes from the fact that we want to do our best. And so when we, when we stumble, which by the way, I mean, I'm sure you've had a ton of people on the show saying, of course we learn from our failures. That's the, that's the best way we learn. So when we're kind and supportive to ourselves, we remember that, mm-hmm. you know, and when we fail, we, we pick ourselves up and try again. Um, now, ha- now, having said this, sometimes the right response is to give up, right? sometimes we're barking up the wrong tree. Sometimes it's good to change careers, for instance, if it's just really not working out for you. That's a matter of wisdom. You don't want to be stupid with this and say, you know, I've got to achieve every single goal I've set out for myself. We need wisdom to say, hey, that's an achievable goal. Or, you know, maybe another goal would be better for you. And so with wisdom and kindness and encouragement, um, it works. So, so I'll give you an example. My son, he was he was actually homeschooled for most of his life. Um, and I finally put him into public school. And, you know, his testing was, was kind of like treasure hunts. It wasn't standard testing. So the first test he had, world geography test, he came home, he got an F. I mean, just like flat F. And so I could have tried to motivate him with the way we often motivate ourselves, which is, you stupid loser. You'll never amount to anything. 
you know, and if you think about this, what would the effect of that be on him? Is that going to like make him say, yes, I can do it? Of course not. That's going to make him feel shame and want to give up, you know, and the same thing with ourselves. Often really harsh language makes us feel shame and shame is not exactly a get up and go mind state, mm-hmm. you know. So what I did is, first of all, I gave him a hug. Hey, it's okay. You know, everyone fails. It's just part of the learning process. But did I leave it there? Of course not. I care about my son. I don't want him to fail his class. So I called all his teachers and I figured out what was going on. And we we realized there were some study methods that weren't working for him. So we changed his study methods. We also changed the way he took his tests. And now he's doing great. And so that's what compassion gives you. It's like, bottom line, it's okay to fail. I'm not going to, I still love myself. It's unconditional. And yet, because I care, I want to do my best. So I'm going to use my wisdom to figure out how to do my best, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like if I don't do my, you have to, I have to do my best or else it's, I really want you to do your best. How can I help? And that supportive attitude is actually much more um, effective. Okay, excellent. Well, it's so, I think I'm picking up uh, what you're putting down there in terms of, and, and I think the tone is really interesting in terms of, even though the voice inside your head is not audible, it has a tone. <laughs> yeah, well, so, yes, but, but the self-critic yeah. does, doesn't it? I mean, some right. people say, oh, it seems so strange to talk to myself. But it doesn't seem strange when you beat yourself up, does it? We're just It's just that we're used to that voice. So we, mm-hmm. we don't even notice it. But it's going in our, on in our head all the time. So we're just learning to have a second voice. And by the way, the self-critic, it's not like we want to get rid of it. Get, uh, often our self-critical thoughts you know, point out places where we're going wrong. You know, it's just ways that we're trying to actually help ourselves do better. It's just not that effective. So we can say to our inner critic, oh, thank you for trying to help me. Got it. I hear you. (laughs) And now how am I going to go about achieving that goal in a a way that's actually a little more conducive to um, success? Uh Well, Kristen, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention regarding self-compassion and related subjects for those wanting to be awesome at their jobs? Right. So, um, you know, just for, for instance, one of the things we know is that self-compassion enhances creativity. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be awesome at your job, it's important that you're creative. But if you beat yourself up all the time, what we know is that negative mind state actually gets in the way of being creative and thinking out of the box. But again, when the bottom line is I'm safe, I care about myself, and if I were to fail, it's okay, that sense of safety gives you more freedom to think out of the box and think creatively. So it's it's really a useful in all sorts of ways, you know, on the job, off the job, really anytime you might experience challenge. All right, lovely. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Ah, okay. Well, there's a quote from Helen Keller that I love, and she says, um, when one door of happiness closes, another usually opens. But we usually spend so long staring at the closed door, we don't even see the one that has been open for us. Mm, thank you. And so self-compassion, that's why we're more optimistic because we don't just stare at the closed door. You know, it, we kind of feel safe and then we can look around and say, ah, oh, well, what other opportunities are here for me? Yeah, well, and I think that's excellent in the coronavirus context because yes. it's true. Some doors have closed and it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> it does suck. And some other doors have opened. That's right. And so you, you got to make sure you're being fully aware and honest and making some prudent calls about where you're pointing that attention. So right. thank you. 
But on the other hand, it's also, it's important also to give yourself compassion for the fact that it does suck. Yeah. We don't have to be chipper and positive. You know, we can just, we can take some time to say, this is just really, really hard. This sucks. Ah, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then that will actually help us get through it. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So here's one. Very simple. Um, In terms of the fact that you really can change your self-compassion level, Uh, So one study had people write a self-compassionate letter to themselves, which is just basically using mindfulness and kindness and reminding themselves of their humanity, um, a letter for uh, seven days straight. And they found that just that simple act of writing a self-compassionate letter um, decreased depression for three months and increased happiness for six months. So it had really long-term effects, a very simple practice like this. So this is something you can, you know, fold into your everyday life. You don't have to actually write a letter, just remembering, you know, these three components, just remembering mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness can make a huge difference in your life. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? A favorite book? <laughs> well, um, I'm going to pick a book called Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. She's one of my favorite teachers. She's actually a Buddhist meditation teacher. And it's just it's just a beautiful book talking about, um, yeah, what happens, the transformation that happens when we just radically accept ourselves. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? <laughs> um, SPSS? Okay. Which is a statistical program. I've used it before. <laughs> Have oh, you? man. Memories. Yeah. Select yeah. cases. That's right. right. Yeah. So you can calculate Ooh. your p-values. And p-value doesn't yeah. mean you're in. It means like <laughs> probability values. Yeah. I was so. always terrified. I clicked one setting a little bit off. It would ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how about a favorite habit? Something you do that helps you be awesome at your job. Uh, well, I do yoga. I do Ashtanga yoga. So I do that three times a week. Uh, and I find when I do that, it just really helps get, you know, helps me have some of my energy out in a more productive way and keeps me flexible. And so I think that helps me, even though I sit in my chair all day for my job, I think it helps that I get out of the chair at least three times a week to do some Ashtanga yoga. You know, we had a, a previous guest say Ashtanga yoga was amazing for uh, making bodily pain disappear. Has that been your experience? Well, it's funny. I'm, you know, I'm I'm 53 and my body's in pretty good shape, and I don't have a lot of chronic pain. So I don't know if that's just good genes or what, but um, it's it's worked out for me. Yeah, All right. and it also makes you strong. Cool, which is nice. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and get repeated back to you frequently? Ah, so yeah, so one of one of the nuggets I like to share, um, actually, along with my colleague Chris Germer, we developed something called the Mindful Self Compassion Program. But um, the nugget is the goal of practice, you know, whatever practice, meditation practice or just life practice, the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. Right? Can you imagine if that's your goal? That you don't have to, you don't have to not be a mess. Your goal is just to be a compassionate mess. Well, that's an achievable goal. <laughs> Right. Um, and so that if you if you start framing things that way, you realize, OK, well, maybe my goal should be more about compassion than about getting everything perfect or right. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? 
Well, just Google self-compassion. I, like I say, I got in early. So <laughs> if you Google self-compassion, you, you can spell it any way you want to. You'll find my website. And I have research on there, hundreds of articles. I've got, you can take your, test your own self-compassion level with my scale I developed. You can um, practice exercises. There's videos. So it's really um, a, a one-stop shopping resource for self-compassion and it's all free. So. Mm-hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Uh, yes. So really, I think it is around motivation, right? So the next time you have a big work task, a big work challenge, just really pause and say, how can I encourage and support myself to get this done? Especially if your habitual way of, of um, encouraging yourself is using the whip approach. See if you can change from the whip to support. Try it out um, and just see what happens. Oh, that is lovely. And could you give us just a couple examples? Like how could I support and challenge myself? You know, part of you, what I'm thinking is I will decide a celebration, you know, after this is done, or I will break this task into a dozen tiny tasks. So they feel more manageable and just be like, okay, I can pull up that email. I can identify the three deliverables right, and so forth. So anyway, those are my examples. What else do you see works? Yeah. So a lot of strategies are kind of more concrete strategies, which are really great and really important in terms of actually how to do your work more effectively. But don't underestimate your emotional state of mind and how that affects your ability to do your best, right? So if you're really tense and you're kind of really like, oh, I got to get this right, that tension, that anxiety is actually going to undermine your ability to do your best. But if your attitude is, hey, you know, I got your back. I know you can do it. But, you know, if you make a mistake, that's okay. It's how you're going to learn. And that's really kind of the self-compassionate mind state. How can I learn from my mistakes? And then if you try that, um, it actually will help you be less anxious and you'll actually be less likely to make mistakes. But if you do, you'll be more likely to pick yourself up and try again. So it's really more how you relate to what you're doing as opposed to what you're doing. Beautiful. Well, Kristen, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck and, and all your adventures and much kindness to yourself. Ah, thank you, Pete. Be well and be safe. <laughs> I really appreciated Kristen's take on the mental tone. So I, I know that I talk to myself. I can sort of hear in my mind's ear, if you will, words. It's sort of funny. I'm not a crazy person. I, I've learned that this is everybody's experience. Although I think it's funny. I talk to myself with I and you and we, the pronouns are, which I think is interesting. Like, um, what are you going to do? I don't know. Well, we got to do something. <laughs> I love there's I, you and we. So I haven't disaggregated them into characters. But anyway, so we all have this voice inside our head. But to really take a moment and think about not just the word choice you're using, like you idiot, what were you thinking? Well, clearly, okay something to watch out for, but even more subtly, just to watch the tone. You could say, what were you thinking in your mind's ear in a really harsh, judgmental, critical way, or in sort of fun, relaxed, I guess, easy going, like whoopsie daisy kind of way. For example, what was I thinking? Versus, whoa, what was I thinking? You get the idea. A nice little subtlety, which I think can make a world of difference. This reminds me of the Charlie Harari episode about uh, resilience and how you think. Great stuff there too. And I hope it makes an impact for you. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep567. If you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe to catch our next guest, Laura Stack. She is talking about productivity and she has some perspectives on 
what we do, the alternative means of prioritizing that don't serve us well, which I thought was very insightful. So I think you'll enjoy that. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.